Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd, <clears throat> I want to read two passages to you as we uh, begin. Uh, the first is a psalm that, that I was reading this week that I thought was appropriate to the discussion that we'd like to have this morning in Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. May God bless us still so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. The other passage that will guide our conversation this morning is found in uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33 and 34 says this, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, on the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty, uh, these words are inscribed. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Words written by Emma Lazarus. What? These are wonderful words. They give us spectacular imagery. Lady Liberty holding up a torch as a beacon of hope for, for weary travelers looking for a place to find refuge, solace, peace, and a better way. Yet about three months before Emma wrote these words uh, in 1883, the U.S. passed its first major restriction on immigration into our country. Which begs the question, when we put uh, that statement alongside uh, our efforts at uh, restricting immigration into our land, is are we a people that are welcoming, or are we a people who want to exclude people from our mix? And I think with those two statements side by side, I think it's a fair question for us to think about. Last week, we started our series on uh, elephants on the loose, topics that sometimes go unchallenged or, or untalked about uh, in, in a church setting. And last week, our focus was on religion and politics, and our, our main emphasis was on kind of breaking down, tearing down, taking the bricks of the walls that sometimes go up and divide us so that we can listen to one another, so we can learn from one another, and, and that we can have meaningful uh, dialogue with each other. Uh, we've been hearing uh, 
the term comprehensive immigration reform for quite some time. And I want to focus our attention this morning on this whole uh, subject or topic of uh, immigration. Uh, see, we've been talking about it for a long time, but there's been very little consensus in, in any actual tangible physical steps forward, you know, they're few and far between. In fact, the last major reform um, was in 1986. We're, we're dealing with a really complex issue, and a few minutes on Sunday morning is not going to unpack the whole topic and the breadth of the discussion. Uh, I'm not going to stand up here and lay out a comprehensive immigration reform plan for you this morning. Uh, what I hope to do is point you in the right direction, point you towards uh, some scripture that may inform your opinion and your thinking on this. Uh, one statistic that I came across this week had nothing to do with immigration at all. It was a Pew Research poll uh, that suggested, or that, that said, in uh, adults in the United States, only 7% identified uh, their religious beliefs as being the major part of how they think about immigration. 7%, that seemed kind of low to me. And so maybe it's because of a lack of teaching. Maybe it's because of a lack of uh, being willing to step into things like this and, and address these issues. Um, I don't know if anything that I say this morning will change your mind. It might. It might not. Well, what I'd like to do is just ask you to think. Be willing to engage with the subject. Maybe it'll provoke you to step up and take action and become an advocate for, for people who are caught between obeying the law of our land and caring for families out of desperation. Uh, current data shows that there are uh, about 41 million immigrants living in the United States. 18.6 uh, million of them are uh, naturalized U.S. citizens. Uh, 22.1 are non-citizens. And, and that's the, the non-citizen category. That's where uh, that's split up into 13.3 uh, uh, have legal paperwork to be here in this country. Uh, and then you hear about the undocumented um, immigrant population in our land, and that currently is somewhere between 11 and, and 12 million people. It's hard to tell. Uh, and then there's another 2 million or so that are here on temporary visas. What I thought was interesting is I think there's a lot of, in my listening and reading, I think there's a lot of stereotypes on uh, on immigrants who are residing among us in the land. Uh, 70% uh, have graduated from high school. 11.6 uh, million of those we just identified have master's or professional degrees or doctorates. And only one, less than one in five, uh, live in poverty. Um, undocumented seems to be the topic that creates the most buzz. And undocumented immigrants, it simply means that, that these are people who do not have papers authorizing them to be here uh, legally. Now, at one point, 
Many of them did have legal, legal paperwork, but um, their visas have expired and they have not chosen to voluntarily uh, take themselves out of the country, and so hence uh, we would classify them as, as unauthorized now. Yes, being undocumented is against the law, but living in this way me means living in a constant state of fear. It's being vulnerable to abuse and exploitation because uh, people who don't have legal status, they really don't have many rights uh, at all. Many immigrants face the challenges of, of language barriers and cultural barriers. Uh, some of them face the haunting memories of the circumstances that, that forced them out of their own country in the first place. And, and sometimes uh, the immigrants that, are, that reside among us, uh, they just feel the weight and the, and the pain of separation from family members that, that they may have left behind because they were out in search of finding a better way for their family. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we ignore uh, unauthorized immigrants, but part of me understands why man, many people feel forced to, to make this decision in the first place, because it's out of desperation. When they're looking, when they look back at their homeland and they see the, the, uh, the, the economic hardship and the political chaos, um, some of them just feel like that there's no choice and we need to go. And sometimes people are here illegally because, you know, our system right now has a limited number of visas. And oftentimes, getting legal paperwork uh, is very difficult. For legal immigrants, uh, the current immigration system is it's kind of cumbersome and difficult to navigate. And it, does, it is time for a little bit of change. Uh, we talked about religion and politics last week, and the political divide over immigration uh, reared its ugly head again this week. Uh, last November, if you pay attention to the, to the news, um, President Obama issued an executive order on immigration to jumpstart action on a, uh, on a long-term solution, um, largely because Congress had, had failed to take any action. Uh, and I know this is a very hot and it's a divisive topic, uh, especially in the states that have borders with Mexico. It seems to be the hottest in California and Arizona and, and Texas. Um, but this past Monday, uh, a U.S. District Court judge temporarily blocked President Obama's order in response to a lawsuit uh, that was brought by Texas and 25 other states that argued that the president had acted outside the law uh, in issuing this order. Uh, if you're familiar with the president's order, uh, or you're not familiar with it, there's, there's a few basics. There's three basics I wanted you to, just to bring you up to speed. Um, and mind you, his executive order was only uh, a temporary action to, to be a kind of a stopgap measure as Congress works to pass something more long-term. Uh, so the three things 
as part of his order. One, build on our progress to secure our border. So border security is a priority. Two, make it easier and faster for legal immigrants to stay and continue to contribute productively. And three, uh, deal responsibly with the millions of undocumented immigrants who already live here. Uh, and as part of his order, up to five million or so uh, would be protected from deportation. And the administration's statement on this is, these executive actions crack down on illegal immigration at the border, prioritize deporting felons and not families, and require certain undocumented immigrants to pass a criminal background check and pay their fair share of taxes as they register to temporarily stay in the U.S. without fear of deportation. I don't know what the issue is here. Because that, what we just read, and I've looked at the president's order, and, and it seems to me to be a step moving in the right direction. Um, and many Americans are, are coming down. About 65% of Americans are, are in favor of this kind of reform, uh, both from the right and from the left and from up and down. Um, but, there, but there are divided issues on this, or divided sides. Uh, from one side, there's this um, push to uphold the integrity of the law. Some believe that we should enforce the law and deport all undocumented immigrants, however painful it might be, uh, even if it requires splitting up families. Position is, well, illegal is illegal, and we have to enforce the law. Uh, for some people, for, for these people, uh, the health, the integrity, the safety of our country are, are at stake here. Uh, these people look at and they consider the economic cost, the added pressure on schools and hospitals and law enforcement, which these are all very legitimate things to look at and to consider. Um, these folk desire um, security and a tight border, and, and this camp would be in favor of restricting the number of visas that, that we issue to, to make um, immigrants legal. This viewpoint oftentimes comes across as kind of cold, unwelcoming. Uh, it puts up a stop sign at, at all fronts, and it kind of just says, hey, you know what, we're not really crazy about you being here. For, from the other side is a push to value the rights of, of people. Uh, people on this side believe that our law should bend a little bit and take into consideration the narrative or the personal story of each person affected. Uh, they agree uh, that the law should be upheld for criminals, but believe that those who are working or who are parents of U.S. citizens should be extended grace. Uh, th this camp favors a more uh, open policy. Border security is important, but uh, we can have it a, a little bit more open and we can, uh, in fact, uh, increase the number of visas that our country would issue. Uh, this side is oftentimes, well, one side is viewed as cold and callous and unwelcoming. Uh, this other side is, is viewed as a little bit too soft, a little bit too weak, and a little bit too expensive. Uh, the rest of us are somewhere in between those two camps, trying to figure out what's the right balance between these issues. How do we balance justice and mercy in, in, in thinking about this subject? 
And, and right now there are many folk who are coming together and, and I think we are starting to move in, in the right direction. I understand the concern with the economic impact and safety, yet the numbers that try to give us hard data on these things are, they're really all over the map and they're really hard to pin down to know which numbers are right and, and which numbers not so much. And much of the stir has to do with the uh, undocumented population. Some believe that legalizing uh, the undocumented population would be crippling to our economy. Others believe that it would contribute billions to our economy over the next decade. And then there's the matter of just thinking about if there's 12 million or so undocumented folk here, about 8 million of those are working, what would happen to our economy if we just lifted 12 million people out and, and sent them away? It would, one, it would be a financial burden in the, in the whole deportation process, but many of those who are working, who are, who are taking jobs, it it'd just be interesting to see if that actually happened, what, what effect that would have uh, on the rest of us. You know, in reading, about, in reading about this, I sensed a lot of fear. I sensed a lot of uh, selfishness in desiring to keep what we have, the, the resources and services that we have in the United States, I sense some selfishness, and we want to protect those and, and keep those for ourselves. But I also sensed a lot of grace out there, people willing to have open arms and be willing to welcome and embrace and help and advocate and I know that there's a, there's a divergence of opinion and uh, there's so many ways to think about this issue. Politically, there's the idea of policy. Think about it economically. Think about it from a perspective of sociology. We think about it as Christians theologically. Uh, we can think about it historically. See, we each have different experiences that color our thinking. And for example, if, if you are working a construction job and you see that jobs are being taken by undocumented workers who are willing to work for less, that might play into how you think about shaping a decision on this. However, if, if you are an advocate and you are working with families who are, are some of their family, maybe mom is, is undocumented, but dad and the, and the kids are, are legal residents, you may come at this from a more compassionate side because you would look at it as, well, if we are really strict to the laws that we have right now, it would rip this family apart. So based on our different perspectives, we all look at it in a different way. The president's action, uh, it may be seen as a less than desirable way of getting results, but I think it definitely represents a, some mercy and, and a step that's moving in the right direction, se seeking to care for, seeking to acknowledge these fellow human beings that, that we've kind of failed to see, failed to, to act upon. 
as Christians, our starting place needs to be the gospel. We need to discover what God might think about it. See, the Bible doesn't say much about immigration. The Bible has a lot to say about immigrants. In our text, we read, When foreigners reside among you, do not mistreat them. The Hebrew word that's translated foreigner there is ger, which means sojourner. It is the word that we would use to refer to immigrants uh, in the biblical context. This word ger shows up 92 different times in the Old Testament. It refers to foreign residents uh, who live in another land with permission. A, a good example of this is found in, in Genesis when, when Joseph asks permission uh, of Pharaoh for his family to move to Egypt. You can find that in Genesis 45. I think it's in your core guide as, as one of your readings for this week. And when they arrived, the brothers asked Pharaoh if they could sojourn in the land. And Pharaoh allotted them a section of the land in, in Goshen. See, the Bible makes it clear that Ger is not to be oppressed. These sojourners, these foreigners living amongst us, are not to be oppressed but to receive equal justice have access to the social support system of the land. But these ger were also obligated to, f to live according to the law of the land. The, the people of Israel were then instructed to be welcoming, to be people who uh, lived with open arms and embraced foreigners who were living amongst them, to practice hospitality, the our family is your family mentality. And, and, and the writer here he, what, what's happening is there's a connection between uh, holiness and the practice of justice and ethical living. Now clearly, when, when we read this, the passage applies to legal or authorized immigrants. We can't simply adopt the same uh, line of thinking about unauthorized immigrants who have broken the law. But this is where we need to look at the way in which God's grace uh, extends to all people. And the psalm that we started with, Psalm 67, says that, that we are blessed so that we can be a blessing to other people. In other words, God makes himself known to us so we can make him known to all people. It, it's easy to remove ourselves from the personal side of this debate. Uh, it's cold and callous to try and solve these very real issues in the same way that we would play a strategy game like risk. See, we're talking about people here. And if you care to, you can just go out and, and search Google for immigrant stories. I read hundreds of them this week. Uh, this one was particularly touching. I, I, wanted, I know it's a little bit long, but I, I wanted to share it with you because we're talking about real people in real situations. This is an article uh, from the Detroit News from last September written by uh, Laura Berman. She writes about a young lady named Teresa. It was a May morning like any other. 
On her way to her clerical job at a doctor's office, Teresa Pekovich noticed an unmarked police car following her. When a red light suddenly flashed behind her, she struggled to remain calm, praying this was not the, most, was not the moment she had feared for the last eight years. She was shackled at the ankles, handcuffed, and placed in a holding cell in the Dearborn jail. The cold and shocking degradation of those surroundings linger in Teresa's memory. I had never been in jail before, she said last week in a phone call, and it was not a place she imagined she'd ever be. She's shown as a serious student, intrinsically interested in learning, a great writer, a deep thinker, is the way Kimberly Redigan, her teacher for high school advanced placement English, recalled her in a plea to authorities recently. Redigan, who teaches at the University of Detroit Jesuit High School, says the nation needs a million more Teresa Pekoviches for five months. Teresa wasted in a Calhoun County jail cell, some of that time in a maximum security section where she was placed with armed robbers and other violent criminals. She lost weight. She lost hope. Last week, just as family and friends mounted an effort to plead publicly on her behalf, she was again handcuffed and deported to Montenegro, the homeland she doesn't remember. I do not even know where I am, she said in a telephone call last Friday. It's very surreal. Through a series of circumstances and events, most not of her making, Teresa Pekovich is experiencing the kind of culture shock few of us could imagine. Dropped into a place travel guides despair of recommending with limited language skills and little chance for future reprieve. People in America talk about immigrants and say, go back to your country. But it is my country. That is where I went to school, where I learned to drive, where I worked and have friends and family, she told me. Her mother and three brothers are all Americans or safely on paths to citizenship, survivors of deportation who were able to return. At 20 years old, Teresa stayed behind to raise her American-born brother, then 14. To support him, she dropped out of college and eventually, fearful of deportation, she stopped reporting to authorities. Her story is at once astonishing and mundane. To immigration and customs enforcement officials, she is Teresa Pekovich, a fugitive who defied an order of voluntary departure and failed to report to authorities. In the inelastic world of ICE, her removal is a priority under ICE's current enforcement strategy, which emphasizes deporting criminals. To her sister-in-law, Gada Pekovich, the college friend who married Teresa's older brother, Drazen, Teresa is the loveliest person you could ever know the sister who sacrificed her safety so her American-born brother could stay in his homeland, a young woman who learned to express herself through kindness and a sense of grace. The only thing she ever did wrong was being brought here as a child, says Drazen. My parents were adults. They made decisions you might argue with, but we were kids. We were brought here. This is where we have family and friends. This is where we were educated. We don't know anything back there. The family arrived in 1989 as the Balkans erupted into war, and their Albanian-born parents fled seeking political asylum. Eventually, they were denied that special status. Their misfortunes continued with the death of their father, who was killed by a hit-and-run driver. The family was officially under supervision, reporting to authorities every three months, still able to work. One day, that status ended. 
Teresa Pekovic won the hearts of many of those who know her. Speaking to her, it is easy to understand why she's a funny, lively young woman, an American in spirit, if not documentation. She arrived in Tuzi, Montenegro last Friday, lacking even the suitcase her family had packed for her with most of her important possessions. Like the rest of her life in America, it had simply disappeared. It's a very harsh system in terms of process. You see these results that seem manifestly unjust to people looking at them with human eyes, says Susan Reed, supervising attorney at the nonprofit Michigan Immigrant Rights Center. Her problem is finding a way back here, said Ronald Kaplowitz, an immigration lawyer. It can take 10 or 12 years or even more. It's especially sad because her whole family is here, not there. Teresa's nine-year-old niece cries herself to sleep at night, worrying about the aunt she loves. Her aunt, who has fought to be an American since she was a five-year-old, is at least momentarily resigned to being a stranger in a very strange land. There's personal stories that are attached to all the people who are immigrants in our country. And I wonder how Christians might think about this subject. And there's three things. The first is, I think we need to call for compassion. We need to remember that we're talking about people here. People made in the image of God. Genesis 1.26 says that we are that all humans are made in the image of God. We are all part of the same race, the human race. But we have various ethnicities, and we are native to various lands. But, but in God's image, we are all people of infinite worth, and we all have huge potential, and everyone, everyone can contribute to the common good. I know that calls into question some political philosophy. But we cannot treat immigrants first as problems that need to be solved. These are people that need, we need to love. We need to see them as our neighbors. We need to look at them first with the eyes of compassion, for they are us. We are immigrants too. Second thing that, that we need to do as followers of Christ as I think that we need to contribute to, and I think that we need to call for a cross-shaped reform. We cannot develop political strategies without considering the gospel. In other words, when we look at dealing with the challenge of immigration, we need to first look to the Bible for our foundational values. Uh, the Bible doesn't give us the specifics of political policy, a number of visas and, and so forth, but it certainly gives us the picture of how God wants us to treat people. And so if we look to the cross, we get a picture of what cross-shaped reform might look like. See, there's a, the vertical axis of the cross which connects us to God. It connects us to His kingdom. It connects us to his truth. But then there's the horizontal axis of the cross, which connects us to fellow human beings, to, to family, to culture, to community. And immigration touches both axes. Vertical is that God cares about people and the plight of the immigrant. 
and the horizontal is immigration reform is a means of, of reconciliation, of recognition and care among us. So as we bring the gospel to bear on how we think about the laws of our land, I think as Christians, we have the responsibility to, to bring the law of the land to, to the same level as, as where we view the law of the kingdom. When there's a discrepancy between the law of the land and, and the law that, that God may be calling us to, that, that He has given us, that as Christians, we, we are to, to lobby, we are to stand up for uh, ways in which we can bring the law of our land up to meet the law of the kingdom. God cares about the plight of these people. And we as Christ followers take up his cause in the world. An, organizational, an organization called the Evangelical Immigration Table, it's a, it's a broad coalition of evangelical organizations and leaders advocating for immigration reform that is consistent with biblical values. And this is their statement uh, of principles. Our nation, or our national immigration laws have created a moral, economic, and political crisis in America. Initiatives to remedy this crisis have led to polarization and name-calling in which opponents have misrepresented each other's positions as open borders and amnesty versus deportations of millions. This false choice has led to an unacceptable political stalemate at the federal level, at a tragic human cost, we urge our nation's leaders to work together with the American people to pass immigration reform that embodies these key principles and that will make our nation proud. As evangelical Christian leaders, we call for a bipartisan solution on immigration that, one, respects the God-given dignity of every person, protects the unity of the immediate family, respects the rule of law, in other words, creates laws and, and upholds them, guarantees secure national borders, ensures fairness to taxpayers, and establishes a path toward legal status and or citizenship for those who qualify and who wish to become permanent residents. I think that's a cross-shaped way of thinking. Six of our current and former general superintendents in the Church of the Nazarene have signed this statement. David Graves, who will lead our district assembly in a few weeks, is one of them. Jesse Middendorf, who laid his hands on my head and ordained me, was another. Dan Boone, who's not a general superintendent, but he's the Preveca, uh, pre president at Treveca Nazarene University, uh, a close friend, my former pastor and, and mentor, has his name on the list, and, and Friday I, I put my name on that list as well, because I think it's time that we stand up for things that represent the gospel in our system. I think we need to call for compassion. I think that we need to contribute to and call for a cross-shaped reform. I think we need to connect and care for the sojourners among us, to become part of the solution, to pray, to fast, to serve, to give, to advocate, each in our own capacity. Figure out how you individually, figure out how us corporately can come together 
and address the issues that we face? How can we serve the people who are facing these realities in their life? Many realities that some of us will never even imagine. Maybe it looks like helping defray legal costs for people or, or navigating the complex system that's in place or assisting with language barriers or offering education um, or participating in, uh, Bevrapana has, has launched a, a, a ministry to international students in, the, in our community, and they meet on a weekly basis and share a meal and, and have a Bible study. Maybe it's figuring out ways that you can help uh, support and, and um, invest in that. I just want to ask you how you'll respond. What, what, can, what can you do? What can we do together? So these are questions that you can dialogue with your core groups about. I don't think sitting on the sidelines and, and doing nothing is an option. In fact, I think doing nothing is, is a sin, and, and that's as much of a challenge for me as it is for anybody. And as we close, I'd, I want to read some challenging words of Jesus from Matthew 25. If, if you have your Bibles, I, I want you to stand with me as we close. I'm going to read this and pray and and we'll be on our way. But these words of Jesus make what we've been talking about, this reality, very clear to us. These words, they don't need any commentary to go along with them. And this is, this is how Jesus ends his teaching ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as, a shepherd as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me people of God said. Amen. Let's pray.